Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of all other people at the table. I'm your host, Dungeon Master Mitch, and once again, DM Chris is not with us today. He is still currently on his honeymoon. With his absence, we have a returning guest to the show. Hashtag Magic Mark is here. Woo! And we are going to, of course, talk about Magic the Gathering today and bringing the magic of magic into D&D. Today, Mark, we're going to be talking about monsters of the multiverse different kinds of monsters in the game of magic and what they're all about and give a little bit about lore with them and how you could use them in a dungeons and dragons campaign we've got some really awesome monsters to take a look at but before we jump into that we of course have some five-star reviews to read and so the first one comes from shadow jack and is entitled the best thing about monday mornings i like that a lot I started listening when they added me to their circle on Google Plus back in December. Since then, I've eagerly consumed every episode. The show has a great variety of content. Stories from the games they are running, discussions of lore, handling players, generating ideas, guests appearance from the industry, etc. Knowledgeable, sometimes irreverent, always entertaining. <laughs> Food mage smells, al dente skin, summon chocolate pudding, Julianne Strike. And that's from Aaron. Thank you so much, Aaron. We appreciate that and giving us more fuel for Food Mage spells. Possibly if the Food Mage pops up once again, perhaps in the <laughs> Hired Heroes campaign. Up next, we have Viper77, his review Great content and regular updates. This is my favorite D&D podcast. Woo-hoo. I'm a longtime player and DM since Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in 1988. After gaming for such a long time, it's pretty common to start getting burned out as you run through so many ideas for adventures. This podcast is chock full of great ideas and puts gas back in the old DM tank (laughs) for one-off encounters or entire campaigns at any level. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Viper77. We appreciate that review. Our last one comes from DM Sparky, and it says, Gave me the confidence to start DMing. DM Sparky says, I have loved D&D since I started a few years ago. Unfortunately, my friends have never been that reliable for getting a group together, so sad. So I took the reins as the DM a few weeks ago. We just had our session zero last week and look forward to the group starting their adventures on Monday. I never knew I would get so hooked on the DM aspect of the game, it's pretty awesome, like I did with character creation. But I think this is a good fit for me. Thanks, DMs Block, for following me on Twitter. Being so addictive, I listened to over 30 episodes in a month. Holy cow. One a day. (laughs) And curing me of my occasional Dungeon Master's Block. I see what you did there. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, DMs Sparky. We will keep on keeping on. With that, let's head to story time. Story time. The time during the episode where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns, our favorite moments where we learned about ourselves and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy Storytime. 
All right, so, Mark, with Chris gone, we're taking a few weeks off of D&D. We're going to, like, have... We're going to still meet, but we're going to play board games and just have a, a good time being geeky with just taking a little bit of a break from Dungeons & Dragons, which we don't ever get a break from Dungeons & Dragons with the podcast, but that's yeah. a good thing. We enjoy it. <laughs> but, so, we, we wanted to still have a story time, so we decided that we tell a story that is a really good story of a huge battle we had in the Sons of Bastion campaign, but we never actually really told this story. So there was this battle called the Battle of the World's Eye. It took place in the country of Nis at the biggest city on Vatos, Utopia, which we've discussed the Sons of Bastion campaign before. Basically, this it was this utopian empire that was basically taking over a ton of countries, doing what an empire does. Growing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you were part of the Sons of Bastion, and this was part of the Guild Wars. And so it was called the Guild Wars because there was two guilds that were kind of behind a lot of the tensions going on. There was the Steam Sword Guild that was run by this character called Karth Stromdell, a very evil mage wizard who was running the Steam Sword Guild, but, like, everybody thought that this guild was a great guild. Like, they, they put on a good face, and they run a lot of behind-the-scenes evil doing They did stuff. very good jobs of, like, black ops kind of yeah. thing, where it's like, we're going to put on the good face, but over here we're committing genocide. <laughs> yeah, we, and we're creating abominations. Of yeah. <laughs> like, we're doing all these crazy things, and so Karth was behind it. And then on the other side, you had the Sons of Bastion Guild, which you and all the players were part of. Yep. And they were the good guild who the Steam Sword Guild did a fantastic job of trying to make you guys look like the bad guys mm-hmm. to the Utopian Empire. Well, it was often like we thwarted their like mischievous dealings yeah. and they would like pop up somewhere else and be like, no, we didn't do that. It was them. They yeah. did that. <laughs> And they were so like well like set up that they had people that would give false testimony and things like that. And yep. you guys ended up looking like the fools and the liars quite often in front of the Utopian Empire, the ci- the citizens. And behind the curtain, you had the empire, the emperor who was kind of being puppeted by Karth Stromdell. He was kind of doing the whole worm tongue thing like into yeah. his ear. And so basically this whole campaign was taking place during the Guild Wars where you guys were running around kind of black opsing like different missions trying to aid the people who were oppressed by this utopian empire and help to like get them back into power so that you could go to war against the utopian empire and like overthrow them and stop this their tyrannical reign and to stop Karth Stromdell who was also doing all this other stuff raising up he was taking like huge flesh golems like adding weaponry to them it promising people immortal life because he found this technology that was uh this ancient magical technology from uh, another guy we have talked about Alhoon this mind flayer evil villain where basically you took this a soul from one body and put it into another so yeah you could have quote-unquote immortality because you could keep transferring your soul into another body <laughs> i mean isn't that how it works <laughs> so uh there was the, like all these crazy things going on basically it ended in this huge battle where bastion windsailer and all the sons of bastion gained the help of all these countries and went to the country of Nis, where the city of utopia was the heart of the empire and had this huge battle and so we had, in this campaign, you guys each had three characters each, yep. 
And so literally this was like a giant battle, even with PCs. Like at this battle, instead of like splitting your characters up and going, I'll play this character tonight, I'll play this character, which is how we played in this game. Yeah. You guys just got to control three characters. The table was a mess. Yeah, it was it was so cool. We had like a huge those epic big battles. I had to like unsnap my binder and pull out three <laughs> different character sheets. Yeah, I remember having like this note card that and was that, like synergy. But you still couldn't stuff. keep it on the table because oh, yeah. we had big battle maps yeah, going it was on crazy. and everything. It was pretty fantastic. But so these armies come outside of this ginormous city. And so there's all these nations that you guys have fought with and and helped get them back on their feet and able to fight again. There was, of course, Bastion was with you guys. Ramek, the son of Kord, who we talked about in an episode a while ago. I think the first Divine Spotlight was there. There was a Sphinx that... Uh, was a, a in my world there's only 10 sphinx and they're way more powerful than even like the D lore like leads to so there was a sphinx that was an ally of bastion there and so it was this just culmination of all the campaign and everybody that you had met there was efreets which you guys have made a deal with at some point that's another good story to share a little hanky deal but <laughs> yeah deal nonetheless but so you guys were all outside of this huge circular huge walled city and all of a sudden, like, dark clouds roll in, and red lightning starts coming down and just zapping soldiers from your yep. side. And then all of a sudden, all of the soldiers of the Utopian Empire start running out and attacking. And some of them, every now and then, are getting zapped by this lightning. It was a weird magical thing going on. And so this huge, giant battle ended up having basically two battles. The first one took place on the fields in front of the city. Yep. And so you guys got to pick two characters to say on the field, but they all started off there. So yeah. basically tell us about this this huge battle of the fields, what happened with characters going on. and Well, I, I always in my mind imagine the, uh, like similar to Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Pelennor Fields, yeah. <laughs> where it's like the huge orc army just like, bah, 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 <laughs> except it's reversed because the orcs are like more defending yeah. kind of thing. Um, and, but they're still outside. So it's like the huge blockade mm-hmm. army of the orcs and the Urukai and all that stuff. But these were like paladins and heavy plate armor that yeah. were lawful evil kind of lawful uh yeah not it wasn't like lawful utopians yeah that's the thing you Uto- it wasn't that utopians were all bad but the the ruling authorities were bad and so the army was doing what they were supposed to but yeah, yeah you're right there were paladins they were called peacekeepers of all things yeah. and they a lot of them were lawful neutral at best yeah. Because at this point in my world's history, Heronius, uh, there's something happened during the God's War, and Heronius has changed from lawful good to lawful neutral. So there's a lot of paladins and a lot of like these construct abominations. Yeah, the flesh I kind of, things. I kind of picture um, the suit that Krang was in in Ninja Turtles. I don't know why that's what I picture, <laughs> but it's like this big, like kind of humanoid-looking thing. And among other things, there's orcs and goblins mm-hmm. and all the other typical big bads and so there's this huge like columns of enemies uh coming at us but then we have these huge columns of allies with us as yeah. well dwarves and golem armor yeah, and, yeah. um uh, did we have griffin riders they had griffin riders somebody they, had griffin they riders. had griffin riders yeah yep. they um, controlled Shemesh and they yeah had i'm sure riders. we had some sort of flyer support well, you guys had the huge sphinx yeah. which is like a it, it is a huge creature and so yeah. he's 
like him between him, Bastion, and Ramek, the son of Cord, like they're doing damage of like a hundred. Yeah, Ramek's like a hundred <laughs> men strong. Bastion, when he wants to be, is like way stronger than a hundred. Blinks an eye, and there's a thousand yeah. gone. <laughs> and He's the like... Sphinx is like a monstrosity. Like he is just yeah. strong and taking out all these. But there's so many coming, even with the nations that you guys had collected utopia was just the army was even bigger yeah so so there's this huge clash of armies that it's almost the scale is too difficult to like describe both at the table and now mm-hmm. um where it's just yeah massive columns of enemies like you'd have to be in a top-down rts god mode of like <laughs> send a thousand units over here <laughs> So there's this huge clash of armies and players and magic is going off all over the place and yeah, the lightning coming down and all sorts of crazy things. But for D&D purposes, we had to focus in and focus in on the characters that we were using. And I think this lightning played a factor in the battle too for the characters who were on the field. I believe what we did was you guys, every time you were... Like taking a turn with a character, you rolled a percentile, and if yeah, you rolled like low enough, chance. you got hit by like a lightning bolt, and yeah. it would like do massive amounts of yeah. damage. So, it was pretty terrible. So, but yeah, and I think there was an equal chance—not probably not an equal chance, but a likelihood that the opponents would, yeah, as soon as they were in the danger zone, you they guys were in the danger zone. You were pretty sure that this was, even just without knowing, you were pretty sure this was magic from Karth Stromdale. Yeah, that Karth Stromdale was controlling this, and you're like. Car Stromdale's evil and bro don't I care get, about he, casualties. Yeah, he doesn't care about like the foot shoulders. He doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so we have this clash on the ground and it's you know a good big battle and it was a lot of fun. But then we get to this point where it was like uh, we told one person's character, dude, blow your cool trumpet, which is from a different yeah, Bastion, story. Bastion like grabbed him and said, "Now's the time." And you guys had gotten this yeah this silver long trumpet yeah. and we're told to use it in dire need. At the point of most dire need, and there were points where you guys had discussed it and like didn't use it, but Bastion <laughs> like pulled this uh, Caleb's bard character side, which for the life of us we couldn't remember his name. Even Caleb, Caleb at this point, <laughs> we remember the other characters' names. But Bastion pulled this guy aside and said, "Don't blow that horn until I tell you to. We yeah. need it." And so. During this battle, the last night, Bastion pulls him aside and said, now, now's the time. And so he he pulls out this trumpet and he blows it and he toots it. He toots the <laughs> trumpet and it lets out this blast and I think it disintegrated, right? It just yep, like, it just turned into silver dust and, and it was gone. One blow and then gone. another sphinx appears, yep. right? This is a different uh, one. A smaller one. Yeah. Would, we would say about large size. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to call him Sonic Sphinx because he was super <laughs> fast. Yeah, he was. Uh, he just you just saw this blur in the air just come yeah. and then land next to you. And so it's kind of one of those moments where we as players were like, we got another one. <laughs> what? And so this one lands in front of us and Mitch and the DM basically goes, everybody pick one character and hop on. <laughs> and so we get four of us on the back of this one mm-hmm. Sphinx. Well, I think two of you were on the back and he grabbed two of like, you by like the hands and like just yeah. took off. So, and he darts off and he's the speed Sphinx for yeah. lack of a better term. And I always picture him like the old school, like Sega Sonic <laughs> ball of just movement that is happening. <laughs> Not uh, how I pictured it, but okay. <laughs> 
This is this is a good example of difference between <laughs> yeah, the, DM and yeah, player perspective. That's fine. So yeah, we have like this moment of like zipping over mm-hmm. to infiltrate the yeah, fortress. No Griffin Riders were able to touch you because it was just yeah. you guys flew straight for the heart of the city. Which at the heart of the city there was this huge citadel tower, and on yep. top of it, we might have discussed it a little bit before, but there was this the big diamond, diamond yeah. that was uh, just glowing and letting off a light. And this was like where the emperor lived and where the order of supreme justice <laughs> of all things was all these paladins who most yep. were n- lawful neutral, if not a couple being lawful evil, like met and ruled over the city and the utopian government, which, of course, Karth is really the one in charge. He's the one doing the whispering. And uh, you guys fly on the Sphinx. And as you're getting closer, you see that Karth Stromdahl is on top of this citadel. Yeah. He's like waving his hands. He's cackling, you know, the whole evil villain kind of Ultimate thing. power. <laughs> and you guys are like, okay, yes, he's the one creating this lightning. Then I think the Sphinx said, all right, you ready to jump? And all you guys are like, what? what? <laughs> You're not going to help? And so you did jump. Yeah. <laughs> you guys jump. You guys are all okay. What happened? Did Karth turn around and just like zap you guys? No, bro didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> um. So he's like on his little like plank of justice or doom or whatever yeah. you want to call it. And this ledge coming out. Yeah, yeah. And so he's got like his uh, personal guard that are hanging mm-hmm. out up there because clearly the guy's not just going to leave himself alone up there. So we first have to fend off the personal guard. There was like this draconian half dragony guy that had like wings and a big axe and he was a doozy i don't remember who else was there i don't remember particularly yeah. either because they weren't important characters but basically every single guy who was up there was like you guys knew <laughs> this is this is the battle <laughs> this is this is the yeah, battle these guys are strong and it, it was a it was yeah. a tough battle it was a tough battle yeah that draconian guy like ended up almost killing two yeah, of I us yeah i think he was the he was the guy who was the hardest like yeah. he kept on yeah i think that's falling. why I'm, he's the one i remember yeah. because it was like uh, in my character and he would fly over to you guys too yeah. like just like uh, evade you guys yeah. and, i oh. remember like i was the tank so it was mm-hmm. my job to be like i got you we're on lockdown me you yep. bro and he would just keep on going nope i'm gonna fly over here <laughs> i do think krudrick which was your troll uh yeah. kin character had this sweet moment where he went to another bad guy mm-hmm. and i think he just like pushed him off the like tower I, yeah i'm pretty I, sure i'm sure there was a charge moment where it was like he gets displaced five feet back yeah wait there's no five feet back and we're on a tower with no railings first of all poor engineering um second of all dude goes down and so then we end up finally wiping out these these baddies and it's just stromdale and us and he just laughs he's like you yeah. guys can't hurt me stromdale's like bro i'm indestructible and technically you guys couldn't hurt him yeah. that was the thing yeah like, he, had he had, had nothing to worry immortality, about mortality indestructibility yeah thing going on from him being so like he just Bastion. he pretty much like you guys kill the guys he laughs he turns around to talk to you guys and one of you one of the guys even though he knew the plan who we'll tell more stories about this guy in another episode we'll call <laughs> it the misadventures of bob he he went up to like hit the guy knowing it wouldn't work and yeah. hit the hit karth and karth used one spell on him and he got blown away and disintegrated. Yeah. His character died. Just, and just like this moment of, yeah, that's what I thought was going to yeah. happen. He just like got poked and turned to dust. <laughs> and then, so the rest of us were like, oh, that was a good demonstration of power. Yep. So let's not be foolish. However, we were 
we had been questing for a while on a way to defeat him because we knew there was no way to defeat him outside of the certain thing, um, which was collecting the heart of a dead god yep. and a special sword, which we found both eventually in previous quests. And what was it? We took the blood of the dead yeah. god and cut put the, it on the heart sword. open and poured it over the sword. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we have our one character pull out the sword and just like almost like javelin yeah. lance throw Chris's, it. Chris's character, Cruor, just ran up and like pulled the sword out and and there was this moment of realization in Karth's eyes of the sword of Bokob, who Karth was a... Basically, he stole the power of uh, a arcane human, which is a specific type of human that's blessed and created by... Bokob in my world. Bastion Windsailor was one of them. And the only way to kill them was with this sword of Bokob. And so with the sword of Bokob and using certain other magical means like this heart of the god. And so Krua runs up. Moment of realization. Stabs him. He does the whole, but I can't. <laughs> and Krua is just like, yes, you can pushes him off the side and has Sword's this like still in it. yeah has this like Saruman falling from the tower moment yeah. of just like falling the clouds seem to dissipate and you guys had beat this big bad at the end of the and campaign we had one and you guys had one and so then of course the battle was still kind of going on but you guys from playing the battle down below in the fields like without the lightning striking and everything you guys the battle like turned and you guys started uh defeating the utopians and eventually the battle was won yeah by the army that the was your side the sons the battle that was the armies that were on the sides of the sons of bastion yeah and then we had a big epilogue event and it was a fantastic end to a campaign my first campaign that i had actually ever a long, over a year long campaign that I'd finished, just yeah. awesome. And so that was this the battle of the world's eye. There's some, there's a reason that we really wanted to talk about this. If you listen to our hired heroes actual play, you might remember that Malil and Tarhoon have both talked about that they were part of a guild war. Well, this was a battle that Malil and Tarhoon would have been a part of. They were not the heroes of this battle. That was the Sons of Bastion characters that you guys were playing in that yeah. campaign. However, they would have been foot soldiers on, on the side of the Sons of Bastion armies yeah. and like and fighting with them. Yeah, they totally have moments where they probably remember dodging red lightning coming from yeah. the sky they and might fighting have, some crazy abomination yeah, Krang thing. They might have even like bumped into one of your characters from that campaign yep. on the they would not have been on the tower yeah but they would have been on the field they would they will probably remember this huge sphinx coming down because how do you forget those things yeah. and so malil and tarhoon were both in this battle and during this battle sev was somewhere in the in the middle of the the ocean nahalvar <laughs> ocean on his way to Magrath and trying to escape this yep. this utopian empire and this war to begin a new life in Magrathin. And so that's a, like a little backstory to there's the story of that battle that Tarhun and Malil might end up talking about and referencing to. Now you've heard that story. Sev, when Sev and Malil and Tarhun talk about the utopians, now you might know a little bit of backstory about the utopians. So that's the story of the Battle of the World's Eye. Hopefully you enjoyed it. With that, let's head to the meet. I'm starving. 
We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Carve it up! Fist the mouthful! No! Looks like meat back on the menu, boys! Alright, so for today on the meat, we are going to be talking about bringing the magic of magic into D&D. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about monsters of the multiverse, and we are going to be talking about the monsters, Eldrazi, Slivers, and the Nephilim. So, first we're going to discuss the Eldrazi and what kind of monster they are and how you can use them and their lore in your D&D campaigns. And so, first of all, what are Eldrazi? Well, they are an ancient race, and they are from this place called the Blind Eternities. Uh, yeah, so like the Blind Eternities is kind of like this extra-dimensional space. It's hard to explain. It's both. cool if you if you like the whole multiverse yeah. theory for your campaigns in different planes. The Blind Eternities is like a fantastic yeah, idea. It's the space in between, more yeah. or less. If this was a sci-fi podcast or a sci-fi setting, it would probably be a lot more of like that dark space in between galaxies, like this mysterious space that doesn't really have much to it, but it's dangerous and lethal. And, yeah. and the, these are kind of a race and a species that is a lot of like, they exist beyond the 3d that we interpret the yeah, universe they don't have in their true form if i can yeah. say it they don't have a form they're not physical in nature they i kind of feel like they're like the the other the they the aliens from like interstellar if you've seen that movie mm -hmm. of like this species this these entities that are like beyond the comprehension of us as three and a half yeah. dimensional creatures they don't time travel but they exist beyond the they exist in between left, planes right. if your mind can wrap around that and yeah. it's a it's a weird the blind attorneys is a weird concept for exactly because it's a it's not it's not a plane it's an yeah. in-between plane place yeah. which is weird and hard to grasp but that's where these formless creatures called the eldrazi come from this ancient race Although it is not known if they first originated from there or if they found their way there and adapted to its harsh environment and that is now their their originating yeah. home. But their origins as far as where did the Eldrazi, at least the three Eldrazi Titans, which are the three original Eldrazi, where did they come from? It's not known if that's where they first came from, if they were born there or... Perhaps they came from somewhere yeah. else. And it's it's pretty impressive to think about these. If they did come from somewhere else and adapt to this this harsh environment that even planeswalkers, if they spend a time longer than a few moments in, just die. Like yeah. like it's so dangerous that even planeswalkers who are have adapted to it, being able to travel through this space, if they decide to be like, I'm just gonna stop here, they're dead. And I gotta imagine that part of that reason is because of the Eldrazi and yeah, of what probably. they are as creatures yeah. like at, at their very core of their nature they are undying hunger and so they they travel the multiverse from plane to plane and they just devour the plane and the people who live there and the creatures that live there their life force and their mana which is a is a magic the gathering yeah. term but i i think of that as in if you want to relate it to D&D &D, arcane energy so they just feed off of like magic energy and they feed off of life force itself 
and they will do this until the plane that they're at is completely destroyed. It becomes nothingness. Yeah, if you if you like Star Wars, this is World Devastators. If you yeah. like Marvel, this is Galactus. Yeah. Like the Eldrazi are coming to your planet to your plane you're done it's it's over they're going to eat it they're going to devour everything and then there will be nothing left once they leave like we said there are three eldrazi titans that every eldrazi that is ever created has come from one of these titans and so there's three titans first up we have emrakul he is the largest and probably the quote-unquote alpha eldrazi yeah the most feared Eldrazi of them all. Yeah, so he is a floating silent terror. Think giant Portuguese man of war in the <laughs> sky. <laughs> he yeah, he it looks I mean, one of the things that we would highly recommend if you don't play magic if you don't know Eldrazi is to go and just do a Google search for Eldrazi and because just look at the, art. the art is fantastic. Emrakul looks like yeah, like it almost looks like a half jellyfish this huge half jellyfish, half almost like floating island. Yeah. Like it almost looks like Big, an like island with like tentacles plates. coming yeah. out. And I think that's part of the point of the Eldrazi is they're not like something we've ever seen before. They're now, very, we did mention yeah. that they don't have form. We'll get to the, how that they appear Became, like this. Yeah. We'll talk about yeah. that. But they don't have any sort of like concept that's very like humanoid. No, or yeah. They're very alien in nature. Mm-hmm. Up next, we have Ulamog. And he is the infinite gyre. Yeah, it's it's cool because the Eldrazi are one thing to note is that they have a lot of very cool names like associated with them. And I don't know if they give it to themselves or if these are the names that the people who are afraid of them and who are being terrorized by the Eldrazi like give it give to yeah. these creatures. Ulamog is the emblematic of plague, the blind bonds between parasite and host and overabundance. He is creation and destruction wrapped together in unholy harmony. <laughs> you described him as like a consumer. The, he is the, the consumer. consumer yeah. Like if if the Eldrazi collectively are the Galactus, he's the mm-hmm. mouth of Galactus. Yeah. He's the one that sucks in the mm-hmm. place and, and consumes the energy of it. He looks a little bit more humanoid than Emrakul does. He's yeah. kind of got arms and almost like this face-looking face thing, yeah, the, but he's got a ton of tentacles and still has this weird alien look to yeah. him. The Ulamog bloodline are distinctive because they have this bony faceplate yep. that has no like features or anything, but it you can distinctly see like that is a face yep. if you took out the eyes and removed the nose mm-hmm. and the, there's no openings or anything. It's just this bony face. And some of the other distinctive characteristics are the um, split arms, where it's like they have a single upper arm and it's at the elbow you can have like two to six arms mm-hmm. just coming out of one primary arm i guess (laughs) so that's kind of like the consumer and i imagine like those arms are all like for shoveling in the land and the magic and everything just kind of like shoveling everything to the mouth because that's what eldrazi are they're devourers of everything (laughs) the next one that we have is kozalek and he is named the butcher of truth uh his thing is he's slicing up reality and a relentless (laughs) insanity his big themes are deception puzzles lies 
mind domination, transformation, and experimentation. In the story of the Eldrazi, the Eldrazi themselves, when they take over the, the plane of Zendikar the first time, they end up dominating and controlling all of the vampires on the plane. Hmm. And Kozilek is kind of the mastermind behind that, of just being like, oh, vampires are cool. They're consumers like us. We're going to use them and like zap all the vampires at once, and all of them become like and these we'll mindless servants. Um, so the vampires were the last things to be eaten because they were aiding in the eating yeah. of other things. The sages call Kozilek the confusion of panic, the trap of enigmas, and the harrower of thoughts. Kozilek looks once again, more humanoid than Emrakul does. He actually has hands. like They're three-fingered hands, but they, they definitely look like hands. His body, his body comes to the bottom when it's just tentacles, tentacles, tentacles. And he, too, like Ulamog, has almost a face-looking feature to him. So he's Emrakul the greatest and the biggest is the most alien yeah the most alien the least looking like anything humanoid although ulamog and kozilek definitely don't look <laughs> very humanoid in their yeah, appearance no. it's just they're a little bit closer and so we said that we talk about how they went from being formless beings to physical and so there were these three planeswalkers soren markov ugin and nahiri and so they decided to try and and destroy the Eldrazi once and for all to rid the multiverse of these terrible creatures that went around destroying planes. Because originally they were going from place to place and place yeah. and just consuming everything and, and wiping out billions upon billions of lives. It really is this, like, it is the Galactus of Magic the Gathering because yeah. Galactus is the same way. Like, it's this, he's this cosmic entity that he keeps going from planet to planet he keeps eating and like earth knows that they can they turn galactus away but they know eventually eventually galactus is going to come back yep. and eat their planet like and even if they turn galactus away from earth which they do sometimes in the comics the still horrifying go thing somewhere is else. yeah it's still going to go somewhere else and galactus doesn't care if that place has life on it or not like he's going to consume the planet uh, and the Eldrazi are seeking out places with life force, so they're yeah. specifically looking for living creatures to to devour. Mm -hmm. And so these three planeswalkers, they get together and they say, "We gotta, we gotta stop these things. This is there's nothing more important than destroying and finally stopping the Eldrazi." And so through magical means, they force the Eldrazi into a physical form, and that's how we get the look of. Yeah. These three Eldrazi Titans. They they bait them to a specific plane. Yep. They go, ooh, look at this one. It's pretty tasty. And this plane has like a, a specifically like more fierce mana. Like it's mm -hmm. the land itself is more power than your average plane. So they bait them to this specific plane. And they've done a lot of prep work to really like, okay, so we're going to try and bait them here and kill them. Yeah. And it didn't work. No, they, they lure them to this plane called Zendikar, which it is interesting to note that it is Nahiri's home plane. Yep. So she is taking a huge risk, and it kind of speaks to that fact of how dangerous these things are and how much of a terrible thing they are in the multiverse that she would take the risk to say, yeah, let's lure them here because it'll work. 
Uh-huh. And so they 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 do it does work kind of yeah. for a little while. They trap them there. They trap them. They have these powerful hedrons, which are these floating stone monoliths that appear uh, in Zendikar all the yeah. time. Yeah, basic giant floating D8s. Yep. And so they they magically with these hedrons imprison the Eldrazi there. So for hundreds of years, the Eldrazi are trapped, and because they're trapped, they simply just become dormant. After hundreds of years, though, there's the first awakening. And so they wake, and they're angry, and they begin to spawn many Eldrazi drones, and they call it the Brood Lineage. And so they try to escape from the plane of Zendikar. They they wreck havoc on Zendikar, they consume its mana, and they massacre its inhabitants. So this is the point where Nahiri is probably going, did oh, I do the crap. right thing? Yeah. Like, if this is a character in a story which it is like you can almost feel the turmoil going on like she's trying to do good but she's unleashed the eldrazi on her plane she's essentially sacrificed her home planet or her home not just like her house not just her family but everything Everything. she's ever known about everything ever not even just the sentience but everything every living creature is being devoured and destroyed the whole plane becomes a blank slate yeah they are however unable to because now they are trapped in their physical forms to escape zendikar and so these three planeswalkers they return to zendikar and they once again imprison them and for thousands of years again it works yeah and these three, they show up just in time to save a little bit of planet. Like, yeah, there's like still there's, some Zendikar. There's enough moments and blinks and like pockets of life that Zendikar is able to resurge yep. and become, become Zendikar alive once again. again. Yeah. And the plane itself reacts to the presence of the Eldrazi mm-hmm. and becomes like the the land itself seems to be developing resistances to and preparing for this attack again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Zendikar is now known for its particularly wild magic and like the forests are like you know trees of giant fly traps that'll just eat you and uh all these different things that normal planes just don't have because they've never experienced this (laughs) massive plane-wide destruction well and survive that's the thing no no other plane has gone through an attack from the eldrazi and been able to side. been able to build up a second defense because yeah. the Eldrazi don't leave things alive. They leave yeah. when everything's gone. Yeah. So the land itself has been able to retaliate against this. So if you end up having this kind of thing in your campaign, you know, it's not unusual to see giant crazy beasts, you know, like dire anything. Dire dire anything. Yeah. Of just stuff that's been like why is it able to do that? Because there's nothing around that makes sense why this thing needs to be this violent. However, in the lore of the Eldrazi and these giant, all-consuming creatures, it's like, yeah, we need to be able to fight for ourselves against a crazy opponents, not just these normal hunters and stuff like that yeah i really like lore like that that shapes fantasy worlds like playing in a fantasy world that there was this event that took place that destroyed the world as it was before but it didn't completely destroy it and so the world was able to regrow the societies were able to rebuild once again but it definitely like an event like the eldrazi is going to change that world 
forever, especially if it's like you said, like a world that even the world itself knows this might happen again. And so we build up defenses against it. But I mean, that's even a cool thing. If you if you just if you don't want to use the Eldrazi for a campaign to like battle against Eldrazi, something like whether it's Eldrazi or something like the Eldrazi would be awesome to put into the history of your homebrew worlds of this happened at some point in the timeline of my world and how has that shaped the world as it is now as it's had time to regrow and people have been able to rebuild society and civilization and like is this like the boogeyman stories that the kids say like you know what caused the eldrazi coming it was kids who didn't listen to their parents (laughs) (laughs) i'll listen i'll listen i'll listen listen. i don't want the eldrazi to come and eat i don't want to be consumed (laughs) yeah this is kind of can also be like post-nuclear winter and like like you know, these global destruction events that can be in the distant past. And how does your universe, how does your world react to that? You know, you can have crazy, weird death claws and other weird creatures that are like, why does that exist? Oh, because this thing that happened a crazy long time ago did this crazy thing. <laughs> and now the the world itself has reacted. And this is a result of that. So there was this thousand years that these Eldrazi were once again in prison and Zendikar was able to rebuild. And then after that thousand years, three other planeswalkers came to the plane of Zendikar, came to the place of origin where Sorin... Ugin and Nahiri had basically set it up for this imprisonment of the Eldrazi and they disturbed this place and once again these Eldrazi awake and they once again begin to feast on Zendikar. All this happens and again there's like the three that awaken and they begin to you know, twist things and create their own spawn. Yeah, so before, whereas they all created one huge lineage, the brood lineage, now each one creates their own lineage of Eldrazi drones. With each lineage, they all, like, Mark, what you were talking about at the beginning, like, they mirror the image of their Eldrazi titans. So you have the Eldrazi drone lineage that Mm -hmm. follows Ulamog with their mask-like features. You have the Emrakul drones that have tons of tentacles and are not humanoid-looking at all, but there are all these different types of Eldrazi drones all around consuming Zendikar as well. So as far as the story goes, they, they're they still on Zendikar. They can't go back. It's kind of like against their nature to leave because of how the Hadron, their prison works. The trap, yeah. Yeah, the trap up. is basically the plane never runs out of mana, never runs, never runs out of energy, and thus to the Eldrazi never runs out of food. Yeah, they and keep they, on getting that homing beacon like, yeah. that they so keep it's like, going this is, towards. This is the closest source of magic. So they never leave because it's never empty. Which kind of, to me, gives a little bit of insight to the creatures once again. You kind of mentioned at the beginning that they are kind of, in a sense, like those creatures from Interstellar in the sense that they were formless, they are from this place that we can't comprehend. But as far as intelligence, they don't seem to, if that's the case, that they, they keep coming back to the same trap. It seems like they're not really super smart, sentient creatures with high intelligence that are able to... They're driven by instinct and nature, and their nature is to devour. And It's like uh, you're dropping like little pieces of cheese and the mouse is following it basically so that's the what the trap is built around yeah the trap is not so much a trap of they're trapped it's a trap of 
their undying hunger. So keep on letting them think that food is here. Which means if they're not intelligent in that way, there's absolutely no way to reason with these things or be like, wait, don't eat this plane. We'll we'll, we'll tell (laughs) you about all the other ones. We'll We'll worship you. you. Yeah, Yeah. like don't, don't, ah, we're dead because there is no reasoning. Yeah, these are, these are creatures without free will is kind of a way to put it. They are, they're not even creatures. There's a reason they're on the monsters episode, not the races. So these are kind of like, mindless consumers that mm-hmm. is what they're the embodiment of hunger the embodiment of consumption they're not an essence like of autonomy or sentience they're just we're here to eat and so as long as they keep on thinking that there's food there they're gonna stay there but they're coming back to magic the gathering yes the next block of magic coming out i think next fall or this coming fall it's not that far away um is the battle for zendikar and it's a return to the plane so we'll be learning a little bit more about the eldrazi and yeah, getting more future. story from the eldrazi maybe they get out this time Who maybe knows? they'll get away maybe or maybe they leave. get destroyed this time yeah i know that in in the story thus far they've gained control of some of the hadrons which is more or less the bars of their prison but they kind of left the end of that block kind of open-ended and so and now we know why because it's coming back yep so we'll talk a little bit about their anatomy basically each eldrazi lineage has a unique anatomy but they all have this commonality of a proboscis a feeding tube of sorts for the eldrazi to eat away at mana and life force but then Beyond that, they're all their lineage breaks them down from their Eldrazi Titan to be very different in appearance, in appearance and anatomy. I first want to just say these things are absolutely when we talk about D and D terms, these are aberrations. Like, oh yeah, they definitely. have alien anatomy. It's they're alien in their thought patterns, alien in their appearance. They're definitely aberrations. Each lineage is from the different Titans. So first off, we're gonna go with Kozalek. And they're kind of like the the deception and espionage style of what. So they have eyes all over their body. Weirdly enough, never on like the face. It's just like, you know, eyes on their back, eyes on their chest, eyes Damn. on their arms. And then they have these big jagged bony plates that float around them and are attached to them. And then they're also characterized by these bisecting arms like i talked about earlier where it's like the upper arm is normal and then at the elbow it splits off into two arms or more and this is something they share with the ulamog lineage Mm -hmm. which is a good transition segue so then the ulamog line is mostly characterized by the bony mask that i discussed earlier of like this featureless face and then most of the time their upper half is like a large powerful torso with the multiple bisecting arms if you're gonna look up images to represent the pinnacle of ulamog progeny look up path razor of ulamog it's like this big tentacled mass at the bottom and then yep. it's this giant torso of just like six arms just like crawling and, at and you. the hands have six or seven weird stringy fingers honestly this pod when we talk about the eldrazi won't do the eldrazi justice if you don't go and check out some images of eldrazi because they if you don't like magic at least check out this art it's fantastic yeah so the the path razor i think it's like three fingers and three thumbs like it's just like all about grasping and taking things in so that's kind of the ulamog lineage and then lastly we have the most foreign which is the lineage of emrakul so it's this really bizarre mix of like lattices of tentacles and flesh, mm-hmm. but nothing really like 
just like identifiable. It's like sacks of different organs and um, these weird like grayed out purples and reds and different colors like that. So they have lots of tentacles that really seem to have like no purpose. But then they also possess like all these different things of like just grabbing things and taking them in. And lastly, this is the only lineage that has really like no discernible sensory organs. So you can't find the ears. You can't see the eyes. <laughs> they can't really smell as far as you know. They just kind of like somehow know what's going on yeah. around them. I cast darkness so it can't see me. Mm. Oh, it doesn't care. <laughs> so it's almost like they see and interpret existence in a different way. Yeah. So like all those spells of like silence and all kinds of things that interrupt the sensory probably wouldn't work on these creatures because they they sense and exist in a different way of interpreting the world. I almost wonder, since these things are just driven by sensing life force and and mana, like arcane energy or whatever it is, yeah. that if they almost have like a almost like an infrared, except it's like it's like they, they see, see like the power glowing, of like magic. auras are are a yeah. huge thing in D and D. Eldrazi, I imagine, would sense auras of like life. Like they would they would like be able to zone in on that beating heart of the creature and the blood yeah. flowing throughout his veins, know that it's living be able to sense that from plants, be able to sense magical auras and be driven to those magic and those life force uh, energy and just eat it. So it, I, I almost wonder if any of them, like even if the even the ones that have eyes all over their body, like yeah. are their eyes like their primary form of seeing or do they all have this sense that they just see auras? That's what they said. Zendikar was so much life that they were it, they were easily able to lead them there to trap them. Yeah. And I wonder if it's like they sense all of this and they see like this aura sense going yeah. on. And I think there's like, you know how like rattlesnakes have like those pits that sense heat. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how does how does the rattlesnake interpret the world with that additional sense? Yeah. We have no idea and there's no real good way to depict that for us to understand. I think it's the same way with the Eldrazi of like, they sense these auras of life and magic. It's almost like, Spell like ability always has detect magic. Also <laughs> blind, kind of these like weird combinations of things that it's like they they can interpret the world through this sense that we just can't comprehend in our minds. You know, Indominus Rex style or something yeah. like that. Yeah, Eldrazi are awesome. I think that they would be fantastic to use in your campaigns. I would say that if you're gonna fight Eldrazi in a campaign, it should be this like event that it's like it's world ending high level campaign like epic level like you could even open up your campaign with you are fighting an ancient red dragon you're playing epic level campaigns and all of a sudden out of like a window in the air this weird creature this alien looking creature comes out and you're in the middle of fighting this dragon and it lashes out its tentacles grab this ancient black dragon and just sucks him in like he's nothing (laughs) like just devours him and then and then you're like oh my gosh and then from behind him the window's still open in the air and all these little eldrazi drones start floating out and coming at you and it's end of the world type stuff like you have to raise armies you have to fight these eldrazi extinction event level yeah moment of just like unending consumption coming at you or like we said you could do the you can build a world that's been based off of 
Eldrazi were at one time prevalent here. Maybe maybe you take that Zendikar trap in this world still. Maybe your PCs come across this temple in which the Eldrazi are all dormant inside and you come across these creatures. And even if you have players that play magic, like you yeah. could explain it without using the word Eldrazi and explain the situation. They come in this temple and these huge, weird-looking creatures that are just seem to be still and not moving and there are some players that would be smart enough to turn away from this, but there's some players who would go, I need to I need to know what's going on here. I need to investigate. And maybe that's like those three planeswalkers that came and investigated and set Eldrazi free on accident. The same thing could happen. Yeah. And it could even be to the point where like they're exploring this quote unquote temple and it happens to be built on like the back of the Eldrazi. Of an Eldrazi. Yeah, like we said, Emrakul kind of looks like a floating jellyfish island. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And so, like, you know, you just, you're walking down this hallway, and the walls seem to be made of this weird material. It looks almost like bone, but it's, like, dark in color. Yeah. And then, like, the next way, you know, on your left, you see a weird fleshy sack that you can't really <laughs> identify. So, it's, like, this moment of, like, you're in a building, but it's got almost, like, an organic vibe to it. And then if they poke around too much, maybe it wakes up and they're already in the stomach. So campaign over. Eldrazi would be fantastic also in if anybody out there is a fan of Spelljammer or D&D where it was basically D&D in space. (laughs) (laughs) Where it was like fantasy creatures like floating around in space on these ships like the Mind Flayers we talked about. (laughs) The raw real monsters had like squid ships and stuff. Eldrazi would be perfect for like a spell jammer s like yeah D in space kind of adventure where these they're just these huge creatures that are floating through space just we we mentioned you know D is all about planes and stuff but you said like even at points it's like same thing with planets like so yeah. if you were if you like the idea of planets take it and these eldrazi just go are space creatures that float around and devour planets yeah <laughs> you can have it be that But that's all we have about Eldrazi. The next creature that we are going to talk about is we're going to talk about Slivers. Mark, you have a Sliver deck. I do. It's annoying. I love it. It's so annoying. I hate (laughs) it personally. (laughs) Basically, whenever you pull out your Sliver deck and we're playing Pentagon, it's, all right, everybody versus Mark. (laughs) Oh, you guys are Mark's allies. Will you let us kill him? Yeah, you will. (laughs) It's better now. It's terrible. It's better now. (laughs) I don't want to verse it. So basically, what are slivers? So they're more or less like those hive mind creatures. Think like ants on crack almost. (laughs) Well, maybe not crack. Um, Mega ants. Think mega like ants mega ants. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they're they're these this hive mind that has like very insectoid type structures, um, but they're very specialized. Like you have like these brood lines, not really brood lines. I'm still on the Adrazi. <laughs> There's these different subtypes that are just very specialized in what they're supposed to do. So much like ants, where you have the worker ants and then the like other the soldier ants and various other kinds of ants. Ant-Man's not out yet, so I can't really say. <laughs> well, it probably will be out by the time this podcast is released. Oh, yeah, it will be. Anyway, there's like very specialized different types of ants, and it kind of takes this idea and takes it to the nth degree and brings us slivers. They are all kind of have the same basic body, but then there's different things that are adapted for their specific purpose. Like? Uh, the original slivers, they were depicted with an armored vertebrate body, a long, bifurcated, whip-like tail, one arm with a single talon for a hand, 
and a head with an armored crest. And so there are variations of this appearance that existed in accordance with the abilities, like Mark was talking about, that each has to offer to the hive. And then in later versions of the game of Magic, we see more evolved forms of slivers that have an even more humanoid look to them and features to them. Like the Eldrazi, their origins are unknown. We, We don't know what plane the slivers first came from. We first see them in the game of Magic from this plane called Wrath. But which, without the W. Without the W, yes. Wrath was an artificial plane, so it was created. They lived in this place called the Sliver Lair. Pretty self-explanatory right there. Yeah. Which was a series of underground tunnels. Now, there was this one sliver called the Sliver Queen who was bigger than other slivers. And the Sliver Queen was the center of the hive mind for the slivers on wrath so basically the sliver queen was pretty much controlling all the slivers like if you cut the head of the sliver queen off you're going to set all of these the hive mind is just going crazy and it doesn't know yeah. what to do the orders are cut off from yeah. the rest I, of the slivers i think like rachni from mass effect which I'm, mm. I'm making an obscure reference to an obscure reference, um, <laughs> but anyway, there's in the that in the Mass Effect lore. It's some like, some listeners out there who love yeah. Mass Effect are just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Rakdai, Mass Effect One, everybody talk about it. So <laughs> I liked all three of the games. Yeah, they're great, but it's <laughs> even they, the third one. <laughs> they don't even deal with the Rakdai. They don't really deal with the Rakdai yeah. beyond. Well, they do a little bit, but anyway, and one they talk about the culture of the Rakdai a little bit. Well, what about Geth? <laughs> You got the yeah, Geth the, too. Yeah, the Geth are pretty they're high, high mind. So, but I want to talk about the Rachni. Okay, talk about the Because they're bugs you, and they even look okay, kind of like Okay, okay, talk about the Rachni. Um, so anyway. I'm gonna, the, well, you talk about the Rachni. I'm going to look up the Rachni. <laughs> so the Rachni have like these queen mothers and they they have like, the way they put it in the lore is the queen like sings to mm. them. They do kind and, of like slivers. Yeah, and so they um they kind of communicate to each other through this telekinetic song and the queens based on proximity control the hive to an extent and so you kind of have this moment but when the queen dies they all just basically go crazy Hmm. so there's a story in mass effect one where they're breeding rachni without a queen and people are like why can't we control them they're just wild and so you have to go stop it so did the creators of mass effect just totally rip off magic the gathering because that's kind of what it sounds like here Um, because in magic the gathering there's this storyline so basically these the slivers all die off on on wrath yeah and hundreds of years after they die off there are these wizards who are on this journey and they find sliver fossils on their journey on wrath Mm -hmm. and they decide hey we're wizards let's resurrect these things and study them but these things have been dead for a long time. They don't know about them. They want to study them. That's the point of it. They don't know about the importance of the Sliver Queen. So they resurrect these Sliver without resurrecting a Sliver Queen, the Sliver mm-hmm. Queen. And so these Slivers without their Sliver Queen alive, they just go wild and rampant and overrun this. Thankfully, it was an island that these experiments took place on. So it's just these Slivers just took this island over and killed everything off. Which, one, <laughs> kind of makes me think, <laughs> like, hmm, that's very close to <laughs> what you were just talking about. There. Secondly, though, that's a fan, that would be a fantastic 
D&D campaign. Yeah. Like, you could have a whole group of wizards. Like, I've always wanted to play a D&D game where it was just, all right, guys, you guys are all wizards, part of, like, this wizards guild or whatever. Yeah. But, like, you're all wizards, and you were part of this experiment gone wrong on this experiment island. Like, yeah. You always hear about those islands where they experiment on the, animals. The like, island of like Dr. That. Moreau. Yeah. <laughs> but I lived on Long Island, New York, before I moved here to Michigan, and you know this, Mark. I'm more just telling listeners. But mm. so there was this island uh, off of the coast of Long Island that was well known for its doing experimentations on animals and stuff. Basically, face value that you knew they were doing expect- experiments with, like medicine, things like that, yeah. testing them on animals, of course, before they do it on humans. But there's this famous picture, and if you've never heard of it, like go and look up. You can look it up right now as I t- tell you it. But the Montauk Monster. And it's this famous picture of this washed-up, weird-looking creature that washed up on a beach, allegedly uh, on a beach in on Long Island. And the body of this creature went missing, of course. Of uh, course. <laughs> which conspirators will say is because the government took control of it yeah but basically they said that this creature washed up got away from the island washed up dead because it tried to swim away washed up dead on long island and some guy found it and (laughs) you're looking at the picture i'm looking at the picture um i've also read a cracked article about this specific like weird mystery monsters Mm -hmm. um but anyway it's basically a raccoon with a beak okay it's not a raccoon with a beak what are you talking about are you wait are you reading something right now that says raccoon with a beak no okay because there is a i was just about to say there's a news a news thing that says Oh, like, look at that. It's just a raccoon. How does it look like a raccoon? Google search Montauk Monster. It does not look like a <laughs> raccoon. I also like conspiracy theories, so I like to pretend that it's we- it's real. But how is that a raccoon? It's it's the body of a raccoon. That it's, is not yeah, a raccoon. Yeah, it's got a freaky face. I'll give you that much. It has a beak. <laughs> yeah, it's a raccoon with a beak. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> What? Okay, well, I don't know what kind of weird raccoons with beaks are running around Michigan, but well, there's, ooh, there's an artist rendition of it as a living creature. It's pretty sweet. What? Yeah, look at that. Check that out. We'll put this in the show notes. Montauk Monster, check it out. We're going to put some Eldrazi pictures and and some Montauk Monster pictures in the show notes. It's but... up to you to discern which is which. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so anyway, Montauk Monster, real or not real. Oh, then there's a picture of a raccoon. Somebody drew a raccoon over the Montauk Monster. All right, whatever. <laughs> so, all right, we're done with the Montauk Monster. What were we talking about? Slivers. Uh, so there's this island. Yeah, this experimental island. I think that'd be a fantastic D&D campaign where your players all play wizards and there's just these slivers everywhere. And even in your campaign, if you don't want to name the slivers, you can have it be their their hive mind powers could come from the fact that wizards experimented on them. Because we we said it before, but each different slivers have different abilities. But the um, the crazy thing in both the game of Magic and if you brought these into D&D that makes them so dangerous and scary is that when you put two slivers together with two different abilities, their hive mind, they, their linked abilities, and so now they both have the same ability. It's basically the more slivers that are present in a general yep. area, the more they are capable of doing... like. They, the the hive mind is like such. they all become capable of doing those things. Mm-hmm. So in a in a game of magic, it's you have a f- one flying sliver. They all have flying. Yeah, you have one 
sliver with trample they all have trample so it's it's one of these things that a single sliver not that big a deal eight different flavors of sliver all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with crazy mega powerful slivers it's crazy and it's awesome and it's terrifying and they would make a fantastic D&D monster and that's why we're making this podcast <laughs> and so yeah that's that was the story of them on wrath so don't resurrect them without the sliver queen that's a yeah, bad idea i don't much. i don't think it'd be a good idea with the sliver queen but yeah. well if you resurrected the queen first maybe she's thankful maybe i don't know <laughs> i don't know necromancers again, beware these would probably be under the aberration aspect as yeah. well so yeah. we don't really know how the sliver queen would react to that yeah aberration magical beast maybe yeah. somewhere in there do you want to talk about the other plane uh okay so next we they they occur on multiple planes whether or not that's of some other influence outside of slivers or their own we don't know but anyway the next plane is chandelar um, so the slivers there have gleaming gem-like eyes and some sort of hair uh, which is more like squirming tentacles of yeah. jellyfish. I always thought they looked like uh, tentacly dreadlocks coming yeah. off of the slivers. Yeah, I think, slivers. think Kit Fisto from Star mm, Wars. That's a good one. Um, yeah. Except not humanoid. <laughs> uh, well, I guess some are more humanoid. Maybe he's in a humanoid sliver. Yeah, mm. maybe he's... Yes. Maybe George Lucas likes Magic the Gathering. <laughs> All slivers have Jedi. Um, so anyway, so some of them get this more um, humanoid-like appearance. Uh, so I think they're starting to get faces, maybe multiple limbs. Mm-hmm. So they're, these are developed more so slivers. Yeah, they're so the like, evolved forms of slivers yeah. that we're talking about. So they've adapted to maybe a more humanoid-needing environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're better slivers for lack of a better term so all of them still have this chitinous plate and other things that glisten and slid about like oiled pieces of machinery so they kind of like more insectoid like Mm -hmm. bodies and they also used like a a chittering clicky speech yeah that's that was something that they specifically mentioned about these slivers which i wonder like do did the wrath slivers not speak like and honestly do they need to speak with this hive mind aspect yeah. no but i i was kind of wondering if you put these in a D world would these creatures be able to speak to other creatures like obviously they all understand each other with their hive mind yeah however i wonder are these creatures that are able to speak i would probably rule on no they wouldn't be able to speak at least common tongue they wouldn't be able to speak oh, no. to they would not be able to speak to other humanoids basically I, I picture like that scene in independence day that mm-hmm. terrified me as a child where they like do the experiment and cut the one open and there's the living one and the guy gets his <laughs> neck grabbed by the tentacles yeah. and the thing can't speak but he can like since he's touching the guy yeah the guy can speak oh yeah um, and, uh fallen skies has that same idea too yeah. they're able to speak through the humans that they put the the, the centipede on. thing on yeah. yeah so like this moment of like maybe you have a party member who gets like shanked by the sliver yeah. and all of a sudden he's like i heard all of them at once <laughs> kind of like this moment of like you get you take damage yeah and you and hear you, them oh that'd be a really cool aspect yeah um, you get like slight like and it might be even maybe you even take psionic damage from that because it just overwhelms your thoughts or like Like, there's a chance of confusion every time they deal damage so it's kind of one of these moments of like maybe if they make contact you you're overwhelmed cognitively Mm -hmm. 
or it's like if you're dead and they like pick you up and it's like yeah that <laughs> and we'll use it as a puppet yeah. yeah a weird creepy puppet but as far as the chitterish speech that the was just mentioned i kind of imagine i just watched world war z again the other day great movie because um, it's got like an unedited version yeah. on yep. netflix or something and i was bored was that worth it um i didn't notice any differences but anyway the zombies in both world war z and in the last of us i'm gonna make a video game reference again <laughs> they kind of have like these what they call the clickers yep and so they have like these weird like yep and they have like these chitter of like yeah the it's teeth. awesome i love it <laughs> it's so creepy so it's really creepy and that's kind of what i would imagine the yeah it totally be like. like a chattering like, kind of thing yeah like these like screeches of air going through passages yep. that are, it's kind of irrelevant but then like this chitter noise of like bone hitting bone and clicking of different plates yeah so on on chandelier they're not ruled by a sliver queen they're ruled by this one sliver called the sliver hive lord and so he is the ruler of the sliver hive on chandelier and this sliver is 20 times larger than the size of a human so it's 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 pretty pretty big. big so if you're going through the sliver territory in your game and you place a sliver hive lord you might be fighting all these tiny little sli- little slivers. Then there's this huge hive lord, yeah. and the the scariest thing about sliver queens and sliver hive lords and things like that is not even like their size and the fact that they're controlling other slivers, but you still have that fact that they're a sliver, and so they will still have all the abilities of any other sliver that comes into contact with and it. Like every sliver close. nearby has yeah. their abilities, and as the sliver that's controlling the hive, they're gonna just call slivers to their aid. Yep. It'd just be crazy. Yeah. So, like, the Sliver Hive Lord mechanically gives all other slivers indestructible, <laughs> which in Magic is difficult to get around, crazy. and in D&D would be insane to get around. Yeah. Now, indestructible in Magic is a mechanic. We don't want to delve into rules and stuff here, no, but, like, really. that's a mechanic that you can get around. Yeah. It's just difficult. So, so maybe in D&D, yeah. you need a special weapon. This sliver is able to plate itself in a special special way mm-hmm. and so the other slivers around it like gain the special plating or whatever whatever it is uh whether it's driven through magic or just through their bodies start to change and mutate uh, whatever it is but yeah maybe you need a specific type weapon once you reach weapon. the sliver hive lord to get through their hide yeah so you can build a whole campaign around that yeah. we're gonna slay the sliver lord yeah that'd be sweet that'd be a great boss battle yeah and so then there's there's this item that I thought was a fantastic item that could be a great artifact if you're going to use slivers in your campaign. It's called the Hive Stone. And so this goes back to the Plane of Wrath, uh, but you could use it with the Sliver Hive Lord or whatever. So this is an artifact that was used to control the Sliver Queen and the Hive. Like if you own this, sli- this Hive Stone, you're able to be in charge of the Sliver Queen and thus in charge of the hive which is terrifying you could have a you could do a D campaign with slivers as the main enemy and you kill the sliver queen and you're like okay it's over and it's not yeah <laughs> they're, they're still moving they're around. still moving they're still working together and you're like what's going on and maybe there's a humanoid person behind it that's evil and trying to kill you and rule the country or whatever it is 
that guy who your DM's been playing this whole time <laughs> has had a stone like in his yes. hat the whole time, <laughs> and all of a sudden you realize. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. There you go. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about this, I think my favorite part about this artifact in Magic is when they uncover this artifact later on in the story, it's later cursed to actually whoever picks it up and has it, it instead of that person controlling the hive the hive then controls this person they become part of the hive mind which is just creepy and scary (laughs) you become a sliver listening to the sliver queen and again this dude in your party picks up this rock and all of a sudden he's like hey guys i found this weird rock with a i must destroy you (laughs) and yeah he just runs off i just feel like he just runs where's he going (laughs) he's like there's no yeah there's no talking i feel like it's just like gone so to wrap this up and how do you use slivers in your campaign besides kind of ideas that we were talking about, I think in the game of D&D, slivers would be fantastic if they even had like special magic abilities. Yeah. Or if you are a fan of feats, you give one certain type of sliver a certain feat like cleave. They all have cleave. And if you are using slivers as a DM as enemies and your players start to learn about the fact that this is what these creatures do it adds a layer of being tactical in battle that isn't in most big battles like when more enemies come in like you can just as effectively just wipe them out individually or focus on one yeah in a sliver battle if you have what are some sliver powers that they could have like there's a sliver who has really sharp sickle arms that burn with fire then they all have it you know you say like in your dming maybe it's like and this one enters the room and all of their blades light on fire yep and so your players get this cue of like if i want to stop the fire i need to take out that one so it adds up this layer of tacticalness of like okay so that one has thick bony plates Mm -hmm. that one has fire arms that one one just came flying down from the sky and now all of them are flying and attacking me so you have this moment of like, okay, if I want to stop this, I need to take out that one. Yeah. And so it adds this layered combat feel of like, I feel like a lot of D&D battles fall prey to the, that's the big bad guy. Yep. There's a bunch of small bad guys. Take out the big bad guy and everything gets a little easier. Yeah. So in this one, it's that bad guy does this thing and everybody gets that thing. And so it adds this layer of your players have to prioritize. Okay, what do I want to take out and in what order? And even there's no big bad guy. It's the collective as a big bad guy. So it adds this layer of, okay, so that one, then that one, then that one. So there's always this constant thinking of like, okay, which one is the worst? So it, it, it works together and has this synergy and it's not just a kill the meanest one first. I like that point, though, that you made about, like, a lot of D&D battles are, like, take out the big thing first. Like, then we'll take out the little guys. But, like, in a sliver fight, like, you could have a Hive Lord or a Sliver Queen that maybe their thing is simply that they control the Hive. Maybe they have no innate abilities themselves. They just call the rest of the Slivers with abilities around them. And so that hive lord that sliver queen is completely crazy and terrifying and terrible unless you can try and pick off the little guys and so if you pick off the little guys they're no longer flying they're no longer have fire blades 
They no longer are shooting out venom. Whatever it is, the they no abilities. longer have anti magic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so maybe the way that you have to defeat this big guy is by killing the little guys to neuter him. Like yeah. <laughs> without it, you're going to die because every hit's gonna almost be death. And it might even be this like we need to run from this thing, run around this uh-huh. room and just kill little things <laughs> and not get hit by this. And that that takes the whole concept that most D and D players would walk into that room with and flips it on its head. Oh yeah. And anytime you can get the players to go, uh that's not working the way it's supposed yeah. to is a good moment. Yeah. So yeah and giving the players ways to in- battle change things up and go i have to tactically actually think through this yeah it's always a good thing yeah now obviously you don't start with the sliver lord battle <laughs> so they don't go oh we kill the big bad yeah. guy first um so maybe help them figure that out mm-hmm. through the process of a session um but yeah slivers are awesome and i think they have a huge potential in a dnd set oh yeah i really um, like them i might yeah. add them to yeah. Autos. in our conversations i feel like i would really want to run into a yeah. battle like that now. i might i might take slivers in my world and i and that's the that's the thing here's the thing it could be the way in magic too because we don't know their origins in magic yep. but in my world if I take slivers and put them into my world, I think what I'll do is they're either going to be creatures that were created by magical means, by mm-hmm. wizards, to be like, maybe this hive stone was created by a wizard to control these creatures he created, these slivers. Mm-hmm. And so eventually what happened was we were saying like that it became cursed that you became a part of the hive in the mind, but we, we were saying off air, like we liked the idea of what if you controlled it and you controlled the hive but eventually, through this link that you had to the hive, eventually the hive mind just started to win you over and you became more and more and more sliver-like in your nature. Like maybe yeah. people are, who are like with you start to notice that you start doing that doing that speech things. like, you know, like clicking and stuff like that and just doing weird twitchy movements and things. And eventually you just become part of the hive and then the hive has control of you. But I would like to, in Octos, I think, either make them completely magical creations Mm -hmm. that a wizard, for good or evil means, created them, or even they could be artificially created through ways of science or maybe yeah. they're even like when you were describing the slivers of chandelar you were mentioned that they glistened and slid or about like oiled pieces of machinery because in their hive mind like sense they are like it's like a huge machine yeah. you got me thinking about ways of like that transition of a mage who's holding the stone mm-hmm. going from in control to control yeah and it, it I had another Mass Effect moment. This is where your Geth come in more. <laughs> there you go. So Mitch mentioned the Geth earlier. They're a artificial intelligence race that they started out as menial workers, but they were designed to be this neural network and hive mind. And they got to a point where there were so many that their computer processing power arrived to a point of sentience. And so it's this moment of where the controlled gain control of themselves yeah and so it would be this moment of maybe this wizard is like he's seeking more power and more power and more power so he's creating more and more and he's like i got the rock i'm in control but then he hits this point where the sliver mines outpower his mind yeah and that's where that that tipping point happens and so then the stone is their means of controlling him it could even be just a good wizard Maybe he's not even a wizard. Maybe he is a wizard that really isn't that powerful. But he did one thing cool. He made (laughs) slivers. And he uses them to, like, farm crops or whatever it is. And he's just like a – he just is a hermit. He just kind of likes to do his own (laughs) thing. He doesn't – he's not out doing adventures. And so he's just got these slivers, like, who – 
basically plow his fields, like harvest his crops. But like he created these things with a superior intelligence and maybe they're thinking along the lines of this hive mind and they're just like, we were meant for more. We And they eventually turn on the wizard and like he creates these things for just a mundane purpose but he creates a much more powerful creature than he was even expecting and it turns and it goes badly for him and yeah. they become these <laughs> and monsters they become this beast though i'm having flashbacks to um the mer episode mm-hmm. it's it's the mer tinker guy one. taking taking this thing to the whole new level he's he basically started out making mer and then as the myrrh became more and more numerous, he designs this hive mind and the myrrh becomes slivers. And so then <laughs> yeah. they have these purposes. The myrrh have specific purposes and then the hive mind has each entity has a specific purpose. It's kind of weird that and you say that because the blending happens. faces kind of almost look a little bit. They got the like hooked beak thing just like the myrrh. Yeah, Maybe so there's a connection. I there. saw the connection. You heard it here first. <laughs> I don't think there's a connection in magic, yeah, no. but I do think that that would be a cool connection you could make in your homebrew world. Yeah. yeah. So maybe if you put Mer in your world, now you got Mer 2.0. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Or maybe the Sliver are where the original and the Mer are the Slivers oh, gone right. Yeah. Mm. So maybe maybe the Slivers. Maybe are the this prototype. wizard. <laughs> maybe whoever created the slivers is just like i need to create something to fight these and he creates the mer <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fantastic all right so the last monsters that we want to talk about are the nephilim and so what are the nephilim mark you know a little bit more about these so i'll let you kind of steer this one all right so the nephilim are weird to begin with <laughs> but they're but they're not weirds <laughs> yeah they're not weirds but their origins kind of begin um as ancient mysterious beasts i'm sensing a pattern in this episode yeah all of these creatures are definitely aberration weird looking creatures yeah so the nephilim are unique in that the block that they come from is ravnica which is a plane of all city it's basically the curasant of magic but in this one, the Nephilim are considered the old gods of Ravnica. So they are from before the city was fully covering the planet. They are ancient and mysterious entities that do not make demands or accept sacrifices, unlike the gods of now. They do not require or answer prayers. They were only there to humble the living, walking examples of the world's vastness, diversity, and unpredictability, danger, wonder, horror and complexity beyond comprehension so the creatures of the nephilim are kind of there's these five kind of not really bloodlines but five types that each have the the magic has five colors and each of the nephilim have four Mm -hmm. of the five colors so they're more defined as what they lack than what they possess so they go through these five different types and they're basically they are the exemplary of the absence of this one entity. So, but they get a little fuzzy in their definition. There's not a whole lot in magic. Um, there really about isn't them. a lot of lore behind them. Yeah. So we're gonna give you what they give, and then we are going to try and expand a little bit on the Nephilim and talk about what we think just from what they give us would be stuff that if you could take these Nephilim, which once again are creatures that if 
you don't know the these creatures yeah. of magic, look up the art because the art's fantastic and will give you even even the art itself could give you ideas of a boss battle or yeah. monsters and to the, use. The art itself really kind of defines the yeah, creature they really a little do. bit. So there's five different types. They only made five of them in Magic All. On all of Magic, them thousands there's upon thousands of cards. only five Nephilim. There's only five. Maybe they'll return one yeah. day, but they're they're decently old. Yeah. So, and all they have is the card, what they do, mm-hmm. and the flavor text. Yep. So, other than, you know, what we just said of being the old gods and things like that, there's not a whole lot of information. But we're going to go through the types and kind of walk through what they are and what they are not and kind of go from there and brainstorm as we talk. So the first one is the Your Tiller Nephilim. I like this this one a lot just yeah. from the art. Yeah, the art's pretty cool. It's it's all colors except for green. So mechanically, it's whenever it attacks, you return a creature from the graveyard also attacking. Mm-hmm. And the flavor text says, "When it awoke, the worms of the earth hissed in a chorus of beckoning." Hmm. So when I read that, I kind of look at what it does and know that it's all colors except for green. Green is the color of nature. Go to our what color alignment episode if yeah. you want to know more. Um, so and <laughs> so at its core, the Yortiller is unnatural, unnatural in its existence. It seeks to consume and remake everything in a twisted image of itself. It has necromantic sub themes and is itself neither living nor dead thinking beyond that is a creature of like the absence of nature and what is that like i look at its its artwork and Mm -hmm. you said something about it tries to form things in its own image Mm -hmm. but i i look at its its artwork and looks like a construct kind of creature to me it's got this body i say with a question mark because it's got this big stone circular body and then it has basically two legs that are obviously it looks like they're just constructed onto it and they're these weird like almost basically not a tripod it's a bipod basically it's got like two legs that look like that it created itself and then it has above it a a stone rock with a face on it and it's interesting because in the art behind the rock you can see like the swirl like the sun is behind the rock and the scariest thing about the art is if you look closely, it's got these like branches coming off of its body and there's ropes coming off the branches oh, yeah, that humanoids are like hung from and like dead humanoids are just swinging off of this. Hu- so it's huge. This is not yeah. a like uh, small creatures. This thing is in the picture. It's destroying a city. It's walking through a city. Yeah. I almost think the Nephilim could uh, be the Godzillas of like the D and D world. Like, yeah. like your Tilla has awoken like, yeah. and is devastating this part of your world. Like something woke this thing up. Yeah. These could be like in your world. Maybe there's five Tarask mm-hmm. and each of these, these are the, maybe names the, of Tarask the Tarask is a Nephilim. Maybe yeah. it's the six Nephilim. No, oh, the five color one. Yeah. Or the no color one. Who knows? <laughs> Ooh, the no color one. Or Ooh. the five yeah, the five yeah. color one or the no color one. Yeah. yeah. The Eldrazi have lots of Tarask themes as yeah. well. The all consuming mm-hmm. arrive, but we're not on them anymore. <laughs> but Tarasks leave things. They they yeah. only wake up for a little bit and then leave. <laughs> Eldrazi just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> a Tarask with what? Uh the opposite uh, insomnia, not narcolepsy. <laughs> oh, that Tarask would be so pissed a at everything. <laughs> a Tarask is an Eldrazi with narcolepsy. <laughs> so anyway, next we're going to go on to the glint eye. 
which is a creature that gains its power from the arcane. When it awoke, it shook the plane with the thunder of its craving. The color it's lacking is white. So this creature seeks to consume magic, absorb all arcane power it can. Think like a baby Eldrazi. And it has no concern for others of its kind or otherwise. It is distinctly an individual. I think of this one probably being like using a lot of spells. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it seeks out magic and consumes the magic and maybe it consumes it because it's gaining the magical powers and the energy that the, it takes in. And so then it keeps on being able to use different kinds of spells and things like that. That's what I would imagine if you came up against this one that would be it looks really strange it looks like a a fat slug like creature almost with a a hoof foot for a tail yeah which i imagine like it kind of squishes along but the foot kind of propels it too which is weird looking like a weird inchworm yeah and then it's it's got like two eyeballs one like on its stomach and then its head is like its head is a body. You have to look up this art. Yeah. With an eye in the middle and two arms coming out of it. So these things are just creepy and weird looking. But that's kind of why I think it's a magic devourer kind of beast that just is able to use spells and more spells. I think this would be kind of your anti-mage creature. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's unaffected by Ma- magic. Mages are not able to. Maybe it mages come near it and it's got an anti-magic field yep. and it's not so much that it's an anti-magic field it's a it sucks the magic out of the mage yeah so the mage if mage comes into contact with it it now knows all those mages spells if yeah. it didn't already yeah so all like magic towards it is basically mm-hmm. nullified and absorbed yeah maybe that's how it learns spells it's like i'm gonna scorching ray that thing all of a sudden <laughs> it's shooting scorching rays back yeah. at you and it seems unaffected yeah maybe maybe you can yeah, like you said, shoot magic at it. You scorching ray at it, and instead of like hitting it and bursting into flames, it like seems to like disintegrate on its body because it sucks in the power. Yeah, and maybe every magical hit, instead of being immune, it actually gives it health. Yeah, that'd be crazy. So it'd be like a, a healed by magic. Yeah, it might be kind of cool to end the battle. Maybe be like, and it seems to twitch and catch the spell as yeah. it comes at it. <laughs> Do the um, Yoda thing. Yeah, with the, the lightning sh- from Count Dooku and sucks it up. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was, this is the consumer of the arcane. Mm-hmm. So if you have a very frustrating mage in your campaign, maybe this is how you. Maybe <laughs> this is a creature awakens. that shows up for you, and then your tank can have his moment of glory because he really needs it. Yes. Uh, Hopefully, he doesn't have a magic sword. <laughs> <laughs> well, even then, it might just be still a sword. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then next we have the Dune Brood Nephilim. He generates one one sand creature tokens. Yeah. I don't know why I said one one. That means nothing to most of you. Um, and it's flavor weak creature to- creatures. Yeah. Yeah. The image shows a weird creature spitting out of its mouth sand, and they're forming into little humans and running about. Yeah. So the flavor text is: When it awoke, it spawned nameless thousands to herald its arrival. Yeah. Uh, it's defined by its lack of blue, so it's all colors except blue. This creature has little concern for knowledge and seeks only to survive through control of its faceless and nameless minions made of sand. So if you look closely at the art, the creature is almost like attached to where it is, mm-hmm. and it's just spewing out thousands upon thousands yeah of it's these sucking little sand stuff things. from the um, earth yeah so it's it's it doesn't look like it can move it's just this 
big static entity that controls everything through its minions. Or are these like tentacle like things that are coming out of it attaching to the ground? Do they like move with it? Like it, yeah. it lumbers forward and they like unattach and swing and attach to the the yeah. ground in front of it and it's just sucking up. Yeah, it's by uh, no means a quick thing. Yeah, no, not uh, at all. I would think that it would be slow, but it sends out these sand creatures ahead of it yeah. so as it's, like its minions. So this would be your prototypical fight the big bad and lots and lots of minions oh, yeah. <laughs> situation. So if you kill the big bad, this would be something where you kill the boss and everything just kind of turns into piles of sand. Yeah. So this would be your prototypical D&D encounter maybe where it's a bunch of little minions and the thing is that this thing just keeps on making them and making them and making That's them. That's the thing. You could have these things be to use a 4E turn if I may minions these sand creatures that yep. are created and all it takes is one hit and they're dead. So somebody with cleave can literally just like wow. slash through them and they turn into piles of sand but every round that this creature lives it's shooting out tons and tons more sand people it might even be like capable of reawakening them so mm-hmm. how, think about an encounter where you slice through five or six of these things and you progress forward and next thing you know they're, they're coming you. back up <laughs> behind you yeah so it's like these they're undying and constantly reviving piles mm-hmm. of sand that you just have to fight over and over and over and until you defeat this alpha <laughs> second to lastly we have the ink trader ink treader so when it awoke the mirrors of the world reflected only darkness this one we kind of laughed at because yeah. <laughs> it's the only one without black magic in its ability skill set, and it reflects darkness. And it looks like, from its picture, a black creature. Yeah, it's super dark. <laughs> yeah. I think the ink is the blackness, which yeah, is not like it's. Uh, yeah, its body looks like bubbling ink, pus-filled things yeah. all over it. Its bottom has tentacles coming out of it. It is an aberration if I've ever seen one. There's, yeah. I can't see a face. I can't see anything. It just looks like this bubbling mound with tentacles. Oh, and it even has the bubbles are even coming off of it too and floating away. So what I did was I interpreted this more as a protection aspect of it, like a like an octopus's ink mm-hmm. than a darkness yeah. poison ink. So anyway, the creature is all colors but black. And I interpreted this as the creature seeks to survive through camouflage and to avoid suffering. And that fits into both the mechanic and the flavor of the creature the way it works is if you cast any spells to add it it reflects it to everything so this is the um the creature where you know the glint eye absorbs it friendly to magic users yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is the one where if you shoot it with a scorching ray suddenly uh the scorching ray hits it but then everybody in your party and everything that's serving this thing gets hit by a scorching ray ray so terrible so it's one of those things where if you if you use like global things, you have a chance. But if you target that thing, it would reflect back at you. And I kind of took this to the next level and picture like a guy with a sword or an axe, and he runs up and charges and just goes and hits it, and then you see like a hand pop out of it and hit him back with the same thing. So this might be if you're a lazy DM and don't like rolling dice. It's like the guy goes, "I attack it, and I got a this, and I do this much," and you go, uh, "Does that beat your armor class?" Yes. Okay, you take that much damage or roll too. It again and i don't know how many teams could survive their own attacks i, don't, yeah. I think they'd die from yeah. that well and we, maybe that's the thing maybe this thing is not meant to be killed maybe it's just this and it says that it's all about survival and stuff like that yeah. maybe this is a creature that 
is not going to cause problems itself. With its look, its eerie look, I would imagine this thing just lives in a swamp or something. Yeah. And maybe it's just super territorial. And honestly, it'd be fine just being left alone. But maybe your players have to get to a place and get past it. Or maybe they just stumble upon it. And being territorial, it senses these things in its area. And so it needs it's going to attack them because it's just like, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, leave me alone. Yeah. So I, I kind of took it to the level of like, this is the ultimate survivor. Mm-hmm. It's going to take everything that it experiences and shoot us right back at you. That would make a lot of sense, too, if you have if you took these five Nephilim or if you decide six because of the Trask and you like that idea. But yeah. if you take these, maybe this is the strongest one there is. Mm-hmm. To balance that out, it's also the one that doesn't really care about attacking things or anything. Yeah. It just survives in its own and only will attack if attacked or if not left alone. You know, yeah. It seeks only to survive. Yeah. It doesn't really, it doesn't care about you. No. It's there only to remind you that there's something bigger and stronger <laughs> out there in the world than you. Yeah. And... Because this thing is the the picture perfect counterattack to everything. Because <laughs> it's literally, if you attack it, it does the same thing right back to you. Lastly, we have the Witch Maw Nephilim. Gains its strength without limit and hulks out is what I have written down. Um, <laughs> yeah, so its flavor much. is when it awoke, it shatters the hillsides to make way for its passage. Um, it's defined by all colors except for red. It's a beast that begins in the shadows and gains its power by leeching off the terrain and those around it. But once it reaches enough strength, it becomes unstoppable. So it's very Bruce Banner to Hulk kind mm. of thing. The creature, it starts out as the weakest possible a creature in Magic can be, but it gains its power by, in the game, when you as a player cast spells. So as things, so as time goes by, I think this thing slowly gets stronger and stronger. Yeah, maybe in a D&D world, this thing just gains power from eating. Maybe it just eats yeah. things. Like, All consuming. You look at its, yeah, I mean, descri- described as a leech. Yeah. And you look at the image, and it looks kind of leech-like. It has legs and arms, but they're very skinny. But like, if you take them away, it kind of does look like a leech, mm-hmm. although it has hair on it, which makes it look grosser. It's got a mouth with not like sharp teeth, like really a doofy looking mouth. It's got a tongue hanging out, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like it's slobbering all over. In fact, it's in a big pool of water, which I'm not sure if that is supposed to be its its own drool that it's in so much of because it's it coming be down from drool. it. And then it's got this weird mask looking thing, but it's like in its flesh. Once again, you got to look at the art for it. It's it's otherworldly, but yeah, I almost imagine this thing grows and gains strength. By every time it eats something, yeah. it gets bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger. So maybe it just starts off as a, a small slug-like thing with little hands, and it eats a couple plants, grows yeah. a little bit, finds a rabbit, eats it, grows <laughs> a little bit bigger, finds a badger, gets in a crazy fight because badgers are crazy, badgers are awesome. eats the badger, <laughs> finds no. a deer, eats it, bigger, um. bear. It's the Katamari Tiny Damasi. Of, <laughs> it keeps going oh, yeah. bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's the Katamari Damasi of creatures. Mm. So it's you know the ball that it snowballs and yeah, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's a good example. Yep. So maybe it starts out as like this tiny little uh, wizard's familiar, and then becomes this 
uh, globally consuming Galactus scale. I thing. almost wonder if this would be a fantastic thing to add into a campaign like your players find this thing in the woods and maybe in its little tiny stage, oh, it's maybe cute. it's cute and maybe it like even like will kind of cuddle up against them and it'll like gnaw a little bit on their leg but your players just like, oh, like oh. it's trying to eat me, this <laughs> little guy. <laughs> yeah, ha, ha, ha. And like maybe you take it home and it's like, it's like gremlins. Like you yeah. should probably not have taken that home. It like, was a bad idea. Take it home and just like give it a place and you feed it, of course. He's like, oh, it's so cute. Wow, it got a lot bigger after that. You feed it. It starts to become a joke. Oh, you feed it. It grows really big. And then all of a sudden it's out of control. And and yeah, you can it's, as a DM throw this in. The sh- your favorite and, shop owner. And just throw it in and don't like don't even like prod the players to go certain ways. Just see if they decide to take it home with them and like <laughs> make this a problem themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, you could also have it like be the thing that like cleans up dead bodies after you guys. There, yeah. And then it, you're just like, I don't want to deal with the dead bodies. Maybe and it's, yeah, maybe this cute little guy is following you and yeah. eating dead bodies and you think it's a help. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> and maybe because it's eating dead bodies, it takes a long time for it yeah. to like gain its power. And you just think, oh, this thing's been following us for a while. <laughs> like day one, you just notice like a squirrel sized thing that's been following you guys around. And you notice every time you go back, there's no bodies. And then eventually you're like, man that squirrel's like the size of a small dog now and then you get to the point where it's like all the bodies you've collectively killed for however many yeah however long your campaign's been and all of a sudden you go oh man that thing that thing's getting pretty big is that coming at us real fast is that gonna oh crap it's trying to eat me now <laughs> yeah <laughs> I wish I wish we uh, almost didn't do this episode, and I thought of this so I could put it in a campaign and see what you guys do with it. <laughs> yeah. So that's the last of the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. But in Magic, there's also a little bit of lore around them of their worship by the Cult of Yor, which you might recognize from Yor Tiller earlier. Mm-hmm. And the Cult decide, seeks to bring down the society of Ravnica and return to the ways of old and bring about the power of the Nephilim. So it's like there's this cult that maybe worships these creatures that is like we worship the old gods and there's like all this essence of like we want to destroy all cities we want to go back to nature or maybe a certain circle of druids that is like we are here to follow the old gods and maybe you know this is the one that has the familiar of the tiny little witch ma and <laughs> like they're just these ones that are like all about bringing back the ways of nature and the forces of not society yeah so those are our three monsters that we wanted to focus on from Magic the Gathering and the multiverse of that, specific to Magic, not going to find them in D&D until now because you're all going to go and you're going to put them in your campaigns and have a fantastic time with your players fighting Eldrazi, Slivers, and Nephilim. Now, before we go, I'm going to turn it over to DM Neil and DM Main Prize for another DMnastics. Take it away, guys. Welcome back to DMnastics, the gym for dungeon masters to work out their minds. I'm DM Neil, aka Joe Moniak. And I'm DM Main Prize. For this week's segment, uh, we're going to talk about DMnastics number 10. It was titled No Rest for the Wicked. And sadly for us, there was no episode to tie it to that week because it was Easter. So DM Mitch and DM Chris are probably out, you know, chasing bunnies around, looking for eggs that had candy in them, something to do with their free time while they weren't recording an episode for us to listen to. So for this segment, we tried to do the same thing we did with the previous segment. Last time we created a god through collaboration. This time we decided to create a villain. So we posted up a list of criteria of questions, you know, race, class, 
favorite spells, weapons, associates, methods, and we called the dungeon masters on the forums uh, to kind of create and flesh out this villain uh, and then to try and use it in our world. So the idea we came up with is as followed. A female deep gnome bard who aims to be the power behind the decisions the throne makes or the powers make. Her favorite spell is fear. Another favorite of hers is counter charm. She often carries a drum that she plays, and her voice is said to be quite enchanting. She generally has two light crossbows, and she holds those in holsters on her belt. She has many spies and ears in her service. Most in that service are there out of fear or because they owe her some kind of favor. And then there's a lot that have just fallen under her charm, under her spell. With these spies, she's able to find out all the dark secrets, get all the gossip on those who are in power, and then she uses those to advantage in whatever situation she finds herself in. And a lesser-known fact is that she is a master poisoner, proficient and skilled in all forms of alchemy and herbalism. She knows exactly which ingredients to use to make a potion or poison that will result in the desired effect within whomever she gives it to. Spinel Graycapper is her name. Fear and manipulation are her game. So just an awesome villain that you know, it kind of bucks some of the trends, because first off, it's a deep gnome. Second off, it's a bard. And we all we all generally felt that evil bards just don't get enough love. I mean, so well, true. a little bit more love now with uh, Mad Max Fury Road and the guy with the <laughs> guitar, but still. So just kind of also wanted to touch on how great collaboration is. Uh, I know that we all enjoy it because it's other DMs, so that we're not giving away hints to our players. But we also feel that, like, don't be afraid to work with your players because they have great ideas as well. Just being open and willing to listen to their ideas and incorporate them. I know I've done it where I just incorporate it, but I don't actually tell them that that's what happened. So then they're like, oh, my gosh, that was the idea I had, and it turned out. I mean, you just kind of just fold it into what you already have working. Very true. And a lot of, a lot of players end up becoming DMs one day. I mean, I know that I'm probably one of the anomalies. I just jumped straight into DMing, but a lot of people were a player, and then their older brother was a DM, and then when he moved away or moved on in life, they started DMing. So all players still have really great ideas, even if they're not behind the DM screen. So collaborating with them to create something in your world is a great idea, and it makes them feel like they are affecting the world on a large scale, even if their players right now are level one guys just chilling in a town. Definitely a great idea. So we implore you guys to hop on the forums, get involved in these challenges and exercises, as well as all the other cool conversations that we have on the Dungeon Masters forums. To do that, head over to dungeonmasterblock.freeforums.net. Try some gymnastics. So your players don't ask, do you even lift? I gotta get a pump. That's it. It's good. It hurts. I know it does. That's it. Get it. So that's all we have for you on the Dungeon Masters block. We hope that you've enjoyed this, our fifth episode. Wow, I can't, can you believe that, Mark? Fifth episode wow. of bringing the magic of magic into D&D and all our talk about these monsters, and we hope that you are able to use them and be inspired by these monsters. 
Mark, if they want to write to us and tell us about maybe how they used Eldrazi, Slivers, or Nephilim in their campaigns, or maybe they have other monsters from Magic the Gathering that they're like, oh, I've used these in my campaigns, or I would like to, or anything else in general. Dungeons & Dragons, geekery, anything. <laughs> Where can they get in contact with us and send those to? Well, the email address, which is a great place to send things, yes, it is. is dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. No S, dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Yep. And that's a great place to send things. Or you can go to the forums. <laughs> that's true. Linked in the notes. And also, if you liked us, you could swing by iTunes and give us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it, and it's a great way to spread the word of the Dungeon Master's block. And you'll get a shout-out at the beginning of one of our episodes in the future. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. You can like our Facebook page. Both of those places have great Dungeon Mastering stuff on them. We have a Patreon member shout-out for this episode, and this week's Patreon member shout-out goes to... Martin Stefanson. Thank you, Martin. Martin is a dreaded gold dragon. We appreciate your support of our podcast. It helps us to keep the lights on and to keep going. So thank you, Martin, for all of your support. And hopefully we'll see you on a Google Plus Hangout soon. But with that, we're turning off the lights. We're turning off the mics. We're shutting it down. That's all we have for you on this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Keep on dungeon mastering. Be entertained, get inspired, and improve your craft. Goodbye.